0: This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, we'll hear from community organizer Quinn Brady, about running a local grassroots political campaign.
1: A good policymaker might not be a great, charismatic presenter winning the support of the community. And so I think that's often one of the biggest challenges.
0: Also, at the Peace Academy summer camp, the students learn about culture and about science through food.
2: How does your grandma make it? What does she put in it? Uh, she puts
0: vegetables these stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, September 26th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangerman. Let's start with Agenda Breakdown with host Kim Bishop and her guest, community organizer, Quinn Brady.
3: Welcome to Agenda Breakdown, a podcast that explores how cities and counties make decisions and how you can have a say. I'm Kim Bischoff, and today we're going to talk about how much work it takes to run a local grassroots political campaign. The countdown to the November 8th election has begun, and you're probably seeing signs of it all over Slow County. Literal signs, yard signs, are popping up all over neighborhoods, and mailboxes will soon be bursting with campaign materials for city council candidates, school board candidates, and more. Today, I wanna put a spotlight on the less visible aspects of those political campaigns, because what I've come to realize after volunteering on a couple of campaigns in recent years is running for office as a local grassroots politician takes a tremendous amount of time, volunteer power, and money. Here to shed some light on that today is Quinn Brady, a Los Osos resident and community organizer who's worked on a bunch of local political campaigns. Welcome, Quinn. Thanks so much for having me, Kim. So let's start at the beginning. Once a candidate decides to run for office, what are the next steps?
1: Yeah, well, there's a few things that happen right away. First, you have to do some filings with the FPPC. Um, There's a form, you have to be nominated by your local community members. So you have to gather signatures. And that's a process. Um, And you have to file if you plan on fundraising, some other forms with the FPPC as well. So all of that happens right away as you're building your campaign.
3: And the FPPC is the government body that oversees elections?
1: Yeah, they basically manage and make sure that candidates and any type of political campaigns are compliant with the rules that are at play.
3: How much money are we talking about here? How much does it cost to run a local, say, city council campaign or school board campaign?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and it really depends on what office you're running for and what the competition is like, how long you've been involved in the community, and so what your name recognition is. But right now, for a really viable, slow city council race, I think people are aiming to raise about twenty to twenty-five thousand for a full campaign. School board is much smaller, maybe just a couple thousand, depending on the race, um, and then county board of supervisors races, it is a a lot, a lot more and can be up to $400,000, $500,000 nowadays. And where does that money come from? Yeah, mostly direct donations from community members, businesses, unions, political organizations, people like you and me. In local races, small dollar donors matter a ton and every dollar really makes a difference.
3: And I understand that candidates can give themselves personal loans as well. Is that a common practice?
1: Yeah, lots of campaigns start with a personal loan. The limits don't apply for this, whereas um, a a donor like me, in for a slow city council race, you can only donate a maximum of $300. Um, If you're donating to yourself or loaning to yourself, that limit doesn't apply. And you can choose to donate that during your campaign or pay yourself back.
3: So in addition to money, campaigns require a lot of volunteer power. How do Mm -hmm. people typically build their campaign team?
1: Well, I really believe that a good team is critical to the success of a campaign. Um, So much of the magic happens behind the scenes, and it makes a huge difference having a thoughtful, engaged team who can support you, bring ideas to the table, and also really challenge you when you're making decisions. So often when people are thinking about running, they'll start talking, having conversations with community members and friends. And a lot of times those people will be the first ones to support a candidate and join the team. You'll often see um, a candidate has maybe their spouse or partner or neighbors or friends as a critical part of their team. But that team often grows as you start having those conversations and get the word out. People that resonate with you will often want to support How many
3: people are on the core campaign team for a typical campaign?
1: Yeah, it really depends on the size, um, but there's usually a campaign manager and definitely a treasurer. Those are some of the most important roles. And then there's lots of other things like a volunteer coordinator, designer, communications coordinator, social media, data management. The list kind of goes on depending on how big the campaign is. But really having three key people engaged and supporting you in a bigger lift type of way makes a huge difference.
3: And are those people typically volunteers or are they paid?
1: Sometimes you'll get a paid campaign manager or a consultant, but at races like Slow City, it's often mostly volunteers. The county level, you'll have more paid roles.
3: What are some of the duties that take up so much time for candidates and their campaign staff?
1: Yeah, well, there's lots of things. Um, Organizing meet and greets, organizing canvassing, which is basically knocking door to door in neighborhoods, reaching voters, endorsement process is really important, collecting both individual endorsements from around the community, also filling out large applications to get endorsements from unions or organizations, fundraising, helping make sure that the candidate has the money they need. So there's lots of different roles. Any idea how many hours a week this sort of thing takes? Oof. Um, it's hard to say. In the past, I've spent, for sure, full-time hours as um, maybe in a campaign manager role. Other roles, like volunteer coordinator, you could join a campaign and just spend a couple hours a week. And the candidate themselves? The candidate themselves, it's definitely like another full-time job.
3: That's amazing. I, I'm so impressed with the number of people who are stepping up who also have a day job, You know, a full-time day job. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of city council members and school board members have uh, kids that they're raising. They've got lots and lots of commitments in the community, and they're campaigning on top of that. What do you think motivates people to run?
1: Well, I really admire people that run for office. It's no secret that it takes a ton of courage and a ton of heart. And tons of people who say, I would never run for office, and I totally get that, and I'm one of those people. So I recognize the courage that it takes to step up to a race, and even when I disagree with the person that's running, I often will thank people for stepping in because it's a big deal. What motivates people, I mean, it's no secret that we're living in an incredibly challenging time, and the partisan gap on many issues has just seems to widen. Many people are having their very existence belittled or even threatened, uh, we have public health, climate disasters, bodily autonomy, public safety. There's so many issues and most people resonate with something. And so a lot of people are inspired to run because they see an issue that their community is facing and they want to do better. Some people run because they're just ticked off at how something's going. And I think that can be a great motivator as long as we really engage in finding out why decisions are being made the way that they are and what possible solutions there are out there.
3: You're listening to Agenda Breakdown. I'm Kim Bishop, and I'm here today with community organizer Quinn Brady. I feel like a lot of folks in the community who are really active at some point are asked by people they know to step up and run.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Oftentimes the conversation goes something like, you know, you would be great at this. You can win. And I, I wonder, there's a big difference between having the ability to get into office
1: and actually enjoying the process of
3: being in office.
1: Yeah, it's so true. Um, I think about this a lot. It's two totally different skill sets, really. A good policymaker might not be a great, charismatic presenter um, winning the support of the community. And so I think that's often one of the biggest challenges. And when people are asking others in the community to run, sometimes it's because they see that they can hold the tension between both of those tasks. Now, not Not everybody can do that, and they might be great in office, but they might be a little bit stumbly when you're listening to them present. So I really encourage community members to get to know people, get to know the policies that they're supporting, and not just make their judgments based on appearance or how they sound in a public presentation, but really what it is that they, what their vision is for the community and what they think they can do.
3: Once voters identify a candidate or two who they want to get behind, what are some of the ways that they can lighten the burden? You know, how, What are ways to help out?
1: Great question. This is one of my favorite topics. There's some super simple ways to support a candidate. You can just learn who's running. You can get an idea for what people are standing for. Maybe donate or um, put up a yard sign in your yard. You can take a more active role by attending meet and greets, resharing things on social media, or really get engaged with the campaign and phone bank, Canvas, um, join a campaign team. But one of the most critical things in a local race is really just helping spread the word. So the five people in your network, your coworkers, um, your neighbors – you can reach them a lot more effectively than any candidate can. So if you really believe in somebody, helping spread the word in any way you can is a really important step.
3: Thank you, Quinn. I sure appreciate your help.
1: Yeah, so glad to have this conversation. And I would just add to all the listeners, um, whatever you do, take time to learn about the candidates that are running this season um, in, every, in every campaign season. Get to know the issues in your community and always, always show up to vote. Every election matters. And in local races, races can come down to just a handful of votes and decide the future of our communities.
3: Absolutely. We've seen it so many times where just a few votes determine the outcome. That's right. Thanks so much, Kim. So now it's time for today's action item. First and foremost, make sure you are registered to vote at your current address. Ballots are gonna go out in the mail in early October, so do that as soon as you can, but you can register online up to October 24th or in person on election day. Second, if you're not sure who is running or which candidates resonate with your priorities, then you can find your ballot online at the SLO County website before it even arrives in your mailbox and start reading the candidate statements, taking a look at their websites. And uh, and I recommend trying to meet them at a local campaign event. You can really get a sense of somebody when you have an opportunity to talk with them face-to-face. Once you do identify a local candidate whose campaign you'd like to support – Let them know that you appreciate the work they're doing. And that appreciation can take all kinds of forms from just sending an email to making a donation to canvassing, um, volunteering at any sort of event. Whatever you do, any contribution you can make is going to lighten the load for somebody who is stepping up and committing to do the really hard work that um, most of us are not willing to do. Today's episode was produced by Samantha Reardon with music by Wes Bishop If you liked the show, you can go to AgendaBreakdown.com to listen to past episodes and follow us on social media. You can also find us and subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Bishop Thanks for listening to Agenda Breakdown.
0: You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. Contributor Brian Reynolds speaks with the San Luis Obispo County Public Library's Monique Mata.
4: Hello, I'm Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we are joined by Monique Mata, Adult Services Coordinator for the San Luis Obispo County Library. Welcome, Monique.
5: It's good to be here. Thank you, Brian.
4: Today we're going to talk about services uh, primarily to adults. That's your job title. But uh, I'd like to begin with a little bit about yourself, sort of where you come from and how you got to where you are.
5: Well, I was um, born in Orange County, um, but I consider myself um, to have SLO as my adopted hometown because my family moved here when I was a teenager. Um, That was a long time ago. I won't say exactly when, (laughs) but... um, long enough for me to, you know, not want to talk about it. (laughs) I did attend Cal Poly. um, So I'm a Cal Poly graduate. And I originally wanted to be a history professor. Mm -hmm. So that was my undergraduate degree was in history. And then I thought maybe I wanted to be a lawyer. So I attended Santa Barbara College of Law for a while. um, And I actually graduated, but I never took I never made it past the bar exam. So I'm not actually a lawyer. I'm just, I just have the degree that's currently collecting dust. And then the position at the library um, opened up and um, I'd sort of figured out towards the end of my studies that being a lawyer wasn't really a good temperamental fit for me. Um, I did some internships that, that weren't really good experiences, you know, and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I should do something that isn't quite as stressful. And um, then the position at the library opened up, and I thought, you know, I don't really know what else I wanna do with my life, so I'll just try that, and it, and I got it. And ever since then, I was telling someone the other day, everything kind of felt like it came together for me.
4: Let's talk a little bit about public libraries before we get to this uh, new service array that you're uh, we're gonna finish off the program with. What are some common misconceptions or some frequently asked questions that you need to provide uh, more accurate information to?
5: I think that people may think that libraries are kind of an antiquated institution and that we offer only, um, basically only books and printed material. And I love printed material, so I'm not in any way, um, I'm not in any way attempting to denigrate that. But... We offer so much more. We offer a really diverse array of services, including digital content. Um, We have a library of things where you can actually check out things like sewing machines and induction cooktops and all sorts of things, Chromebooks, internet hotspots. Um, We help bridge the digital divide for a lot of people and and, and underserved communities, particularly. So we offer just a really um, diverse and robust Um, spectrum of services that I think people don't always know about.
4: One of the funniest things uh, people have ever said to me is, well, you've got the Internet. Why do you need a public library? (laughs) Well, uh, not everybody has access to the Internet. Not everybody knows how to use the Internet. Let's say you, you've got, in my view, you've sort of got three types of users. We talked about this earlier. There's diehard library users that are going to come no matter what, whether they're um, researching or, um, say, even a homeless person to get out of the weather. Uh, and then there's people who might be convinced to use a public library if the conditions were right. Um, and then finally, there's people who support the concept of public libraries, but they probably won't have a library a card anytime soon. My question is, does the library adjust its services uh, sort of in, in that framework that you've got different types of customers uh, and they each have a little bit different needs, including ways to get uh, connect with them and let them know what's going on?
5: One of the things that we are focused on now is taking the library out to where people are rather than waiting for them to come to us necessarily because like you said a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of all of the things that we offer or they might not have access ready access to transportation Um, so we are really making an effort to um, do outreach and part of that is our new outreach vans we have three um, vans that we're calling branch out vans and those actually launched in july and those are going to be going um, to various community sites um, around, throughout the county. We're going to be partnering with the food bank. We're going to food distribution sites in Napomo and Oceano. Um, we're going to be um, signing up people for cards. We have Wi-Fi with the vans, too, so we can look up books for people, put things on hold. Um, so we're really trying to get the library story out there and, and you know make sure people know that we're um, a thriving member of the community.
4: If a branch out uh, van came to uh, my community, what kinds of um, services or products would I find aboard?
5: Well, we would be definitely bringing um, a curated collection of books and probably some some music CDs or something of that nature. And um, we would have um, some Chromebooks available for checkout. And um, we would, like I said, be able to... Um, help people access the Internet and, and give them, you know, courses and instruction in digital literacy yeah, on the spot on the spot and um, and just sort of uh, introduce them to all of the um, resources that they can access from home through our website.
4: I have to tell you, uh, having worked in libraries that had bookmobiles in the past, including here, um we had several, uh, sort of the oldest one and then the newest one and then even a newer one than that. And when we retired the bookmobile, I thought that was done. But and I don't, you know, you're not calling it a bookmobile. It's a little bit better name. But uh, still, it's the concept of going, taking the library, uh, its reputation, its services to where people are. Mm-hmm. What a lot of people um, experience every day, but they don't probably consciously relate to it, is we live in a society that's way speeded up. Uh, way too much information to process every day. And and one of my favorite quotes is, time is a great thief. And anybody, uh, even people who are homebound, I'm guessing, their schedules are busy and they don't have a lot of time. And I think one of the greatest barriers or defects of a public library in the past was um, – if you wanted a particular book, especially a bestseller, it uh, wasn't on the shelf. Or if you needed something, it might take some time, a few days, let's say, to, to get a book via interlibrary loan. But um, that just doesn't satisfy, who knows, maybe 90% of the people because um, they're, they're busy. And so I think recognizing that, that people do lead busy lives and that the library can adapt and supplement no matter what I think is huge. It's pretty important stuff. And uh, what is the reaction of the public so far? Are these vans deployed already and going out?
5: We have deployed them to a few locations. Like I personally accompanied the van to the, um, to the villages. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are still building a roster of locations that we're going to be visiting.
4: One of the aspects of uh, librarianship that always fascinated me, and it was one of the first jobs I ever did uh, back in the, by Celia City Library in the early '70s was to serve as a reference librarian, and that name, reference librarian, is it's not very intuitive. Uh, basically, it's a question answering uh, wizard, or where people can ask almost any question. Of a, and I know you've served in that role. I've used you. I'm going to mention a particular instance that's just um, even now amazes me. <laughs>
5: it's so much fun isn't
4: it well it's it, it can be librarians are a little bit like hunting dogs one thing once they get on the scent they don't want to quit until they've found the you know whatever their their goal is true um, but this a sad statistic that i imagine is maybe even more uh, poignant today but anyways i read years ago a state library study was that if an average person has a question that they might be a recipe a wiring diagram a class they want to take these days a podcast they want to subscribe to if they can't find that resource in their immediate uh, orbit or you know that is their own knowledge family knowledge maybe a neighbor or two they quit less than 10 percent of the population with a question unanswered would go to a public library Hmm. and so to me it was always um, so vital to explain to uh, people because everybody has things they want to know about, solving a problem, passing a test, whatever it might be, but um, that the library is there and waiting. I belong to an example now, a nonprofit group that was incorporated uh, in the mid-90s, but they couldn't find their paperwork. And when I joined their board, I said, gosh, what kind of 501CR turned out to be a C4. We didn't know where it was, and we were uh, kind of wary of trying to navigate state bureaucracy to find out. In uh, one afternoon, you had uh, some information for us. Uh, not only that, but you had our, a copy of our articles of incorporation and uh, in hard copy, and you were able to tell us that the state, in their wisdom or some other euphemism I could use, had disincorporated us uh maybe we didn't turn in the right paperwork but of course nobody in the on the board today knew about that they didn't know where the paperwork was they didn't know that we were unincorporated and of course now we're back you know slogging through to get that done but you really saved us a lot of time and effort and uh, allowed us to continue our mission so here you're here for that oh well thank you that's great to hear let's talk about some of the other uh, new services that are coming along that uh, you're proud of
5: something that i am Personally, very excited about is we are in the process of developing a memory lab, and um, a memory lab is um, something that's kind of becoming a trend in libraries around the country. If if you I, I don't know if you've heard of any of them. There's one in Los Angeles. No, no I don't. There's one in San Diego, and it basically involves enabling people to bring their um, their personal memories that are preserved on an obsolete format, mm. like you know, eight, eight millimeter film. Uh, VHS tape, right? Audio cassette, um, and bring it in and transfer it into a digital format. Wow! And I had the pleasure of visiting the Octavia Butler Memory Lab in, in Los Angeles, and of course they have a, a huge, a huge facility and all sorts of um, like real to reel um, professional-grade equipment. Editing. And stuff. Yes, exactly. Um, so we're going to start a lot smaller than that. But um, we're gonna start, we have a flatbed scanner, um, we have a VHS deck, and we we have the software to enable people to digitize it and store things as digital files.
4: If a person's memories today reside in an audio cassette or maybe a videotape, VHS, after it goes through the memory lab, where does it live? Uh, What's the format that the person would use to access those memories uh, going forward?
5: The model is DIY, so we're encouraging people to kind of be as self-sufficient as possible. We provide the equipment, but they will need to bring their own storage devices. Um, so it could be an external
4: hard drive, like a, a, zip, a zip drive, yes, or, or a, a, a flash drive. drive. Yeah. Okay, and then they, you know, it's I And have they to, could
5: also use cloud storage because we're going to be conne- we're going to be connected really? to the internet, so, so I mean, they're on cloud account. Exactly. They could, uh,
4: one of the things that. Um, bothers me about uh, automation and there's plenty is the um, diminution of a person's ability to possess their own records I agree, and i don't totally. mean music but it, it, well it could be music but it, yeah it's just it, you have to get at your own stuff mm-hmm. you have to go through a third party um Anyways, that's, that's to me, wrong and, and not good customer service. Do but we
5: actually own anything anymore? Yeah. Is it, or is it gate, gate kept by corporations? Well, I won't
4: mention any names of, of titans of the automation, but uh, they own us. They own our data. Yeah, They use it to commodify us and sell us things. And that, one of the other fascinating concepts for me with the Internet is so, the so-called digital dark age. And that means, that's a fancy way of saying that, there isn't anybody or any particular agency that is saving the good stuff for future generations. And mm-hmm. by that, of course, we mean taking uh, older uh, records in perhaps different formats that are obsolete, uh, can't be read by the average person, and converting those to more up-to-date um, that matches software and storage, that matches the hardware of the day mm-hmm. or and other techniques. And so this, to me, obviously, is a little bit of an inroad into that, uh, of, uh, making uh, darkness into light.
5: That's precisely what we're trying to address because, yeah, I had this conversation actually with someone recently. Uh, where they said everything's on the internet and I said, it's really not. I mean, it's it's only on the internet if someone took the time to, to digitize it and upload it. We're losing a lot of data.
4: Think about, which let's, I'll start to cry. Think about the um, way history was recorded Prior to the last 50 years, uh, it was taken from hard – sometimes, of course, oral histories and testimony, but a lot of times it was written in hard copy like a person's journal, Mm -hmm. magazine, or newspaper articles of the day about that person or an event that person was involved in. And one of the things I worry about is where are historians going to go for the – you know, the first generation information, you know, not second or third, but the original stuff, the stuff a person wrote down, well, maybe their memories are not accessible because they live in some dark corner. They say Google has us all, you know, <laughs> everything we've ever done, every search we've ever done, you know, mm-hmm. it's on some Google, uh, you know, site. But but um, I think it's just, if we're going to have history and, and be able to reflect back, you know, where did we come from so we can better handle the present and plan a better future, uh, you know, it's, there's some challenges, big time.
5: One of the goals of the Memory Lab um, is just to enable people to preserve their their memories, their personal collections, in, in, and hopefully in multiple formats, you know, so that it's, it's future-proofed.
4: Is it indexable by subject or topic, uh, those records?
5: That is going to be up to the individual user. Mm-hmm. But um, there's
4: software that allows them to do that?
5: Yes, there is such software. And I should clarify that the Memory Lab is not live yet. We're mm-hmm. still um, ordering equipment, mm-hmm. getting people trained on it, because there's going to be some. We're going to have the staff, the staff obviously be trained on it and be able to train others. Um, so it, we're hoping that we'll be able to do sort of a soft launch by the end of the year, in San Luis and in Atascadero. Uh,
4: you mentioned um, the memory lab and and the you know the newly born bookmobile slash branch uh, outreach vans. Do you have? Um, do you have uh, still a relationship with maker spaces?
5: We do. Um, I. I admit I am not up to date on the details of their current hours. I know that um, we do have an active partnership with them, and I think on the website um, it'll tell you you can take your library card to the makerspace and use um, can use their facilities um, certain hours
4: certain. Maybe explain of day. to people what a makerspace is.
5: A makerspace is a place um, similar to a memory lab where um, there is a variety of equipment tools. Um, power saws, 3D printers, 3D printers, and you, you can go in get an orientation, um, and someone will be there to kind of show you how equipment works. But then you can go in and make your own project. You can you can um, you know make yourself a table, um, sew yourself a dress, you know all sorts of things. You, it's a, it's a wonderful way to learn a new skill, and to save money
4: wow it's not uh, my grandparents uh, public library anymore uh in our last few minutes uh maybe let's talk about some trends you see both good and bad uh that uh, librarians need to be aware of but also the public
5: i do think that there is a trend towards um virtual programming um well it isn't it isn't so much a trend towards; it's it's happening, um, and I think that that's probably something that we will embrace going forward and have like a hybrid model where we do we have in-person programs, but we all we have a virtual option available for people too. Right.
4: You don't mean coding. You mean you mean programs uh, uh, back and forth, people speaking Ex- live at exactly an
5: exactly event. events. I'm sorry. I should clarify. Um, events um, that are you're able to attend from home, basically right. on your computer through Zoom or a similar platform. Um, So we're probably going to be holding on to that for the foreseeable future because it's very popular. People have really embraced the convenience of it. And um, like I said, Library of Things, which is loaning out the um, Chromebooks, the um, sort of physical equipment. Um, possibly having a tool lending library in the future. These are all things that are gonna expand and I think it become more and more popular. I have to
4: ask this, if a person borrows a book and damages or lose it, they usually have to pay for it to be replaced. What happens if they lose or break a piece of equipment?
5: It has not happened as much as you might think. I mean, I, I'm looking at the numbers as far as the circulation and I'm looking at a lot of our, the, the equipment that we have and people for the most part are pretty careful. And they do sign a waiver when they take it out so that, you know, they understand that, you know, if anything happens where, you know, they get hurt using it or something that they own gets hurt while they're using it, um, they have to understand that's a possibility. Um, But if they if it's totally broken, yes, they would have to they would be liable for the replacement cost of it. But um, if usually if it's just a small um, like. The other day, someone returned um, something that was missing a, a couple of pieces, and I could just order them, and it wasn't really oh, a big that's deal. Cool. Yeah, and so I it, we just replaced them.
4: Back in the day, when I was first in the profession, we would loan uh, audiovisual kits. It would be a, a slide. It might be some uh, paper, you know, print stuff, and and. Every time it came back, you'd have to check every little thing, and make sure it was mm-hmm. in its place, and the right uh, item was in the sleeve. You know, it might be. A,
5: have to make sure it still works. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, that too. Yeah, so it's it's pretty time consuming.
5: But the library does try to be accommodating with people. Right. So, you know, is we, we don't charge late fees anymore, so we really only we, we try to avoid charging people fees as much as we possibly can.
4: Right, right. No, that's uh, that's, that's a hugely important thing, and I, I tell people that uh, public library of all the. Things they pay taxes for is such a bargain because the average property owner pays probably between thirty and forty dollars, a, you know, a, a parcel for the library services. Mm-hmm. That's borrowing one and a half books. <laughs> so, you know, after that, it's just it's it's open season, you know, for endless use uh, at no extra cost. It's amazing.
5: It's an incredible value. The library card is, is is such a great value. I encourage everyone to go get a library card.
4: Don't leave home without it. <laughs> this has been Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we were joined by Monique Mata, Adult Services Coordinator of the San Luis Ob- Obispo County Library. Thank you so much, Monique. It's been fascinating.
5: It was my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> This
0: is Issues and Ideas on KCBX, and it's time for Playing With Food.
6: This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. I
5: believe the children. Let them lead the way, show them all the beauty they possess inside,
0: give them a sense of
5: pride to make it easier, let the children's laugh.
6: How do you think we're doing at Whitney's charge to us to encourage our kids to be the future? Well, one organization in San Luis Obispo was doing exactly what Whitney wants us to do. The Peace Academy of the Sciences and Arts was founded a couple years ago by an interfaith group of community leaders who, in their words, aspire to create holistic real-world experiences in an eco-friendly and robust learning environment with the most comprehensive standards in the sciences, the humanities, and the arts. What does that have to do with Food. Well, during the Peace Academy summer camp, the Playing With Food crew shadowed the students as they played with food as ways to learn about culture and about science. In this first clip, the kids are drinking their science project. They are very enthusiastic in their describing it, and you can hear other kids in other areas as we have our conversation.
2: We're making butterfly
3: tea. We, um, it
7: started with one color,
3: and then it changed to another color. How did that happen?
7: Now well, the things we put Lemon. in. Lemon. And what did you put in? lemon juice that thingy over there and honey and some honey Honey. and so the lemon juice changed the color of the tea from the original color from blue to purple that's right and also in mine i stirred up mine a lot before and then i added a lot of lemon Mm -hmm. and then i added honey when i tried it i put in too much lemon (laughs) but so what did adding lemon do to your drink it made it um more like tan purplish this color to this color right so from like this nice deep blue to a Pink, nice light pinkish. purple pinkish color and that's what happens mine. when we add acid like well, acidic types well, of food to is things green right with right ph green, up there. <laughs> green oh green well the honey did make the the purple turn a little bit tan that's true. Yeah. And how does it taste, Olivia? It tastes really good. It tastes really good. It's like a nice, refreshing iced tea. Yeah. And an, a science experiment all together at the
2: same time. The lemon citrus made the tea change color, right?
7: Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Why does it have hay inside the tea bag, though? But not all things have like a pH, right? So if we just took like a another flower, it wouldn't necessarily do the same thing. I have a question. Yes. Why is there lavender in the tea bag? Lavender? There's no lavender. I saw a purple flower in mine. Butterfly pea and lemon grass. Are any of those things purple? The butterfly pea. Okay, so that's purple.
8: Yeah, exactly. So we are working with foods that are also pH indicators. So they change color in the presence of acids. So today we're using a blue tea and we're using lemon juice as the acid. So the blue tea is the pH indicator. The blue tea is blue, and then when you add the lemon, it turns purple. And so that tells us that there has been a change to the acidity of the tea. So basically, hydrogen ions are released into the solution, but we didn't get into that specific detail with the students, but just introducing them to the idea of acidity levels and that foods, some of them actually are indicators of those acidity levels. Cabbage is another one which is often used in science labs for high school students to experiment with the pH scale. But what we like about this blue tea is that it's edible, so it turns into a tea party.
6: Each day, a group of kids makes a snack for the rest of the community. But it's not just about preparing and sharing food, which in and of itself is a very powerful tool to achieve the Peace Academy's goals. The kids make food as the experiential part of learning about culture. In this clip, which has a lot of background noise, the kids make tortillas and salsa.
2: My name is Sandra Sarouf, and I am a teacher with the Peace Academy of the Arts and Sciences. This week we have our week-long summer camp called Rhythms of Our Neighborhood and part of the program is around food, food traditions, cultural practice of eating food, of where food comes from, how people from different places eat different foods. And so each day we make a different food and today we are going to be making corn tortillas and salsa and our connection to that is part of San Luis Obispo County. About 30% of our demographic is Latinx, and we're going to talk about Mexican culture, the importance of corn, which was also very important Native American culture. Yesterday we made fry bread, so we talked about the origins of that, which isn't part of corn, but there's some connection to that because of the disconnect through colonialism that Native Americans did not have access to their own food. So they were given flour, they made fry bread. Today we're going to talk about corn and we're going to make the tradition of corn tortillas and then salsa. So our camp are students for the week. There's about 22 students with us. They range from 7 to 14. And each day about 5 to 6 students are part of meal prep and they're going to cook with me.
1: Okay, first, and
2: most important, is make sure you wash your hands with soap and water. Okay, so today we're going to be making corn tortillas mm-hmm. and salsa. And I'll have two groups making the corn tortillas, so two groups of two. Can we make there was only five today. Yes. There was only five today. Okay, well, and then we'll figure it out. We'll make some salsa too. I want to make the salsa. You want to make, make the salsa too? Okay. You can work on the salsa. Mm-hmm. You three can work on tortillas. And the last person, please Um So you'll see the you'll see the tables out there. You can go ahead and stand by a table, and I will bring some ingredients out. Can anybody guess why we might be making corn tortillas? And yesterday in Miss Madi's class, did you learn about four ethnic groups that live here in San Luis Obispo County? Yes. Four races. What were some of them? Um, white, black, Asian, and. Latinx, Asian,
7: they were the four, the top
2: ones. so with a large Latinx population, does you know what that means? So that's Central American, Mexican, South American, so that makes the Latinx population. We have a large population here in San Luis Obispo County in California in the United States of America and so we've adopted some of their food traditions with corn tortillas, corn is a very, very, very important food. In Native American traditions, in Central American traditions, it's an important crop, it's an important food. We say corn maíz. Can you say maíz? Maíz. So, to make corn tortillas, we use masa flour, which is ground-up corn. Can you say masa? Masa. 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 So that's what we're going to use today to make the corn tortillas, and you'll see the recipe there. So it's important to know when we're eating foods that we've adopted to, uh, from other cultures that we know a little bit about those cultures, and we learn and we share and we enjoy in that food as well as understanding more about the cultural practice and the people. Yeah. All right. Vamos a comer. Vamos a cocinar. Measure masa and put it
7: in a mixing
0: bowl.
7: Measure salt and add it to mixing bowl.
5: Mix together
0: to dough. Let's sit for a few minutes. Talk about your favorite Mexican so do- uh, Need to deal with your hands. If it feels dry
7: or wet, as Sandra. Four so- balls, three cups of masa. You can do two. I can do one. Make sure to even it off with your hands. There you go. And then put it in there. Mmm, And there.
2: there. Let's
0: see next. 1.5 Let tablespoons of salt,
2: 1.5. It says, add hot water and mix into a soft dough. But first we gotta mix this. Oh. Uh, yeah, so when you're adding the hot water, add it, one person is gonna pour the hot water slowly while the other person is mixing it. I'll pour it into the measuring yeah. spoon when
7: you come. Yeah. Ooh, just keep stirring. There
2: you go. Have you heard of kneading bread? Oh yeah, yes, I do that all the time. Things. I love so it Because it be- I make my own bread. There you go, and you want to knead some? I want to get as much of this I as I
7: can. I'm sure this will be so good when yeah. it's done. I thought there would be chunks of corn in
2: it, but there's not. <laughs>
3: It's, it's okay. Gets everywhere. It actually feels yeah.
2: really good to me
3: really? because what
2: you're going to want to do is, is make, make little golf ball-sized balls because we're going to press it later maybe into maybe an actual tortilla. These. Yeah, you could start with that and then maybe add a little extra. That might be a little small. Is it golf ball-sized? So who's heard of a tortilla press? Uh, so kinda. this is a tortilla press which makes it much easier to flatten your tortilla. We could try to flatten it with our hands. We could roll it out with a rolling pin, but this is a traditional tortilla press. You're gonna put the tortilla ball in here. You're gonna cover the lid and you're gonna push down and then it smashes it into a press. Ooh, that looks fine. So we're gonna do that. Taking tortillas is hard. Kinda. Of. I thought it would be really easy. Like you just
7: <laughs> made balls and then you smashed them and then made yeah, them. Smash. Yeah. Do <laughs> <laughs> this. Flat.
2: Wow. What? Wow. Look. I think that looks like actually a pretty good size. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a teeny tiny little turkey. What did you do? The flipping smack.
6: Describe <laughs> the flipping smack to me.
7: So you take the top plastic together. off and then
0: smack the tortilla down on, on the it. cutting board and then take off the plastic on the bottom. That's a really good technique. <laughs> there you go.
6: So what are you making over here?
7: Um, salsa.
6: Have you ever made salsa before? No. Do you like salsa?
7: Yes.
6: Do you like cooking? Yes. What do you cook at home?
7: I usually make bread and banana pancakes with my sister.
6: Oh, that sounds delicious. Banana pancakes. Mm.
7: So now there's two garlic cloves. Where are they going? To pop garlic, you want to squish it. And then you want to peel the first layer
5: off so you don't have all the skin in it. Garlic cloves are
6: different. You want a little tip about garlic cloves? Sure. Okay, you usually do this with the, the back of a knife, mm. that makes them easier to peel. Now,
7: the cans of tomatoes.
2: So, on the recipe, when do we add the cilantro? Do we add the cilantro to the. Just so we put
7: everything in the blender.
2: And then blend it? Okay, so I'm going to bring a bowl because we're going to have to do this in batches because I think if we turn the blender on like this, what's going to happen?
7: What? It's gonna yeah.
2: overflow. <laughs> yeah.
7: yes. Question. So you split it, but this one, like, there all the onions were in here. There was no onions in here.
2: Okay, we're gonna mix it all together at the end. So should so I pour that open. in
7: a bowl? Yeah. I think I got tomato. I'm not helping. No, oh, I think if I tip it up, it'll all kind of come to the. It'll be easier to scoop
6: up. So what's in your salsa?
7: this red stuff, tomato, cilantro, and onion and garlic. Yep,
6: Just those four ingredients? And I think we need to add salt. No chili peppers?
2: That's a really good question. We left out the jalapeno today because we're feeding students. Do you like spicy food, Catalina? You do? I should have brought jalapenos today? Oh, bummer. I thought some kids might not like jalapenos. (laughs) Let me see.
7: Can we put that in the onion one now? I think we will, yeah, and then we can mix it. We put everything in um the bowl and then we um split it in two halves and it came out as this.
6: Okay, what did you put it in?
7: Um a blender.
6: And what did the blender do?
7: It blended it.
6: So does this mean your salsa is done? It looks pretty good, it smells good.
7: More salt.
6: (laughs) Salt? Okay, I'm going to taste it. (laughs) It's very nice. I could go either way. More salt or not more salt. I could go either way.
0: You want to know a trick to how to squeeze lemon without
2: getting the seeds? You squeeze it upside down, and you let the lemon juice dribble out the sides. You want to try that?
6: She's good. It's
2: pretty good. It's definitely missing the picante jalapeno, but we wanted to keep the hot out for the kids. Can I try some? Yeah.
6: Yeah. Yeah. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian, watching children become the future. They are being taught well, and the Peace Academy is letting them lead the way. During the Peace Academy summer program, the kids prepared and shared food as a way of learning and experiencing the aims and goals of the Peace Academy. Sandra explained how making tortillas accomplishes that. There's more to today than just cooking tortillas and making salsa, isn't there?
2: Yeah, there's... Just cooking alone, is there's some science and math in cooking and there's literacy in reading the recipe and being able to read what you're supposed to do and then do it. There's teamwork and collaboration because they're working in groups, they're working with partners. How are we as a team going to make this happen so that we're successful? And then really there's, for me, and I think with the Peace Academy of the Sciences and Arts, it's about where does food come from, why is it important, how can we share food, what are the traditions behind certain foods and the way people eat certain foods so there's that deeper context of food is nourishment but food is also cultural practice and food has meaning to people and to generations and so we try to impart a little bit of all of that through the practice and throughout the day.
6: How does this line up with Peace Academy goals?
2: The three pillars of the Peace Academy are global citizenship, environmental stewardship, and self-awareness. And so I think the practice of cooking in itself is part of self-awareness and working together. Global citizenship is about learning about other cultures, other food traditions. I say other, but also knowing it's part of our own and part of what we eat here in San Luis Obispo County, and the environmental stewardship aspect of where does our food come from? Who grows our food? How does the food go from farm to table? Where does the food come from? Is it grown locally? Is it not grown locally? So there's all those different elements when it comes to food and food production.
6: The next day, the kids made pancit, and we first got a pronunciation lesson.
2: Today we're going to make something called pancit. Can everyone say pancit? pancit. pancit. Does anybody know where it's from? Pancit. Yes, Kasai. Am I saying it wrong? Thank you for correcting me. How do we say it? Pansit. Pansit? Thanks for telling us. Tell us about it, Kasai.
7: Um, my grandma
2: makes it. Thank you. I appreciate because you know a little bit about Filipino food and Filipino culture, and so I appreciate you letting me know how to say it correctly. How does your grandma make it? What does she put in it? Uh, She puts vegetables and stuff. So, today we're gonna make a vegetarian version of pancet. Pancet. Sometimes it's made with shrimp or with fish sauce, and today we're just gonna keep it vegetarian for our group. In pancet is noodles, and we're gonna use rice noodles today. So, I have a little bit of information about it I'm gonna read to you. Noodles were first introduced to the Philippines by Chinese traders, just as they did in Japan, Thailand, Italy, and beyond. The origins of pancet go as far back as the 16th century as the world's oldest Chinatown was founded in Manila, Philippines, by Chinese traders and immigrants. The name pancet means noodles, which can either be rice noodles, egg noodles, or mung bean noodles. Basically, any and all localized noodles, typically sautéed with meat, seafood, and vegetables. So, that's what we're going to be making today, and it's made out of rice noodles. And it's a traditional dish from the Philippines, the Philippines ah. but the noodles came from China. Yeah, I awesome. I put on,
7: on my box.
2: Yeah, because you're Filipino. i Filipino. Awesome. We're going to work in pairs of two, so find a cutting board. So, first thing, do we eat? Do this with knives? Never. No. 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 Do we like point it at somebody? No. Never. If we need to hand a knife to someone, do we do handle first? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. When we're chopping, are we sure that our we're holding the vegetable and then we're holding the knife, but we make sure our hand is out of the way? Okay. Yes. Are we chopping super fast? No. We're chopping very carefully and thoughtfully, yeah? Yes. Okay let us begin here's the recipe so you're all going to get to chop everything there's enough of each vegetable that you each get to chop some of that vegetable and so by chopping the onion i'm going to demonstrate you can kind of make a grid first like i like to go like this and then i go the other way almost like graph paper my eyes are going to be really watery and if you don't want to do the onion you don't have to do the onion
6: do you two cook a lot at home
2: To be honest, I'm actually more more of a
7: baker. I've made cakes more than I've made food, and I've made plenty of frosting's too, but um, I do know how to chop correctly. I cook a lot at home. I like to cook. I actually have this baby picture when I was on the counter in an apron when I was two years old making pumpkin pie.
2: All right, so here's an onion for you, and here's a knife. And you have your your knife, right? Yes. Okay, and you guys can chop the onion. And if you
6: don't want to hard cut. You're listening to KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian learning and experiencing how to make the world a better place through children preparing and sharing food with one another. The Peace Academy of the Sciences and Arts brings together kids of diverse backgrounds, as Whitney Houston put it, to teach them well and let them lead the way. The president of the Peace Academy told me about their ethos.
8: My name is Noha Kolkela. I'm the president of Peace Academy of the Sciences and Arts, and we have an amazing team here working with us this week. This week we have a camp for kids, ages seven to 15. Peace Academy was born, 2018 was our first camp, and we did a four week camp and it was amazing and felt like something that we all really needed to do and be a part of. And then 2019, we had four weeks and then COVID hit, we went down to one week. And so our camp until this year is one week and we're still getting a lot of great feedback from the community asking us to do more and uh, yearly programs, I should say monthly programs and then make our summer program longer. And maybe one day, It could be a full-time year-round program so we're working on it it's a lot of work we put a lot of thought into creating experiences for the students and that's really what it is is it's a series of experiences that build on each other that the kids can really learn from and remember right so what they learn is unforgettable because they've experienced it with all their senses so we have three pillars we have self-awareness for kids to have a moral compass, for them to be aware of how their own actions impact not just themselves but others around them and the ripple effect. Also with self-awareness is emotional intelligence and empathy for others. And then our second pillar is social justice and environmental stewardship. So those two concepts are combined so we learn about social justice issues especially as to how it connects to environmental issues the two are very closely linked and that's you know a story for another time and then our third one is global citizenship so to understand our place in the world and how everything is connected and how what we do here together really does impact the rest of the globe in indirect ways but then hopefully you know they grow into understanding how they can have a bigger role on a global level so our curriculum always includes it's really based around those three pillars but it also is based on our values so we have eight values like compassion kindness love peace seeking knowledge generosity so those ideas and concepts are also infused into our curriculum and They're all connected to academics, so we don't teach academics in silo as separate subjects, but we create experiences that are academic in nature, but not from a book or something that they learn from a lecture, but rather through an experience. And it's an application that connects those three pillars that I described with the values. So it's more of like a real world application and experience that the kids learn or apply their academics to. Have you tasted your end product yet?
7: No, not yet.
6: Maybe you should.
7: (laughs) We have to wait until everybody's served. Yeah. And then we'll get served. Yeah.
6: (laughs) And why's that? Why do you have to wait?
7: Because the tortillas are taking a long time, and also a lot of people want them.
6: But why do you have to wait until everyone's served?
0: Because, so we want everybody else to have enough, and then we'll see if we have any left. Yeah, we don't want anyone to get left out Yeah. without tortillas (laughs) and
7: salsa. I mean, like, they do smell pretty good. Yeah, they do.
3: That
6: is very awesome. How are the tortillas and the salsa?
7: It's delicious. The kids did a really good job. I'm very, very impressed. It's really good. Yeah, definitely delicious. They're really talented. Yeah, every year the food tastes so good. (laughs) It's like an addition to my lunch.
6: (laughs) Those eight core human values Noha mentioned are peace and peacemaking, humility, compassion, kindness, seeking knowledge and wisdom, Generosity, gratitude, and love. As I mentioned earlier, I believe that preparing and sharing of food is a powerful tool in and of itself in achieving these values. In my own tradition of Christianity, I've led workshops and retreats on that very premise. For me, playing with food isn't a voyeuristic or gastronomic exercise for media stardom, though please tell everyone you know about playing with food. For me, playing with food includes discovering the personal stories of the people I interview whose lives, livelihoods, and personhoods have been put into the foods that they produce, prepare, and share. Every day of summer camp, the kids sing the Peace Academy song that you hear in the background. Having kids playing with food was a small part of their week-long program, but like all the other elements of the program, the Peace Academy leadership knew that preparing and sharing food is a vital element in achieving the pillars and values. I just have one correction for Whitney. I don't just believe the children are our future. I have been saying for 30 years, I believe the children are our present. And let's let the children's laughter remind us how we can be. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food.
8: One, two, two three! Peace party!
0: You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.